Chapter 5 The Species Homo Sapiens The central thing that goes to make up history is not the external conditions of the world, but the nature of man himself. And this will be the subject of the present and the next two chapters. Man is an animal, but a social animal, and in discussing him, it is convenient to draw a line between his own inherent nature and the way he is influenced by the society in which he lives. The distinction between these is, of course, only a very rough one, and there is much overlapping. In the present chapter, I shall regard man as a biological specimen like any wild animal, and in the next, I shall consider how he is influenced by the society around him. But then the important question arises as to the balance between these rival influences, and that subject is reserved for the chapter following. One of the interesting recent developments of geology has been the possibility of dating the past with far greater accuracy than could be done before. Several different methods have been applied which agree in their broad results, but I shall not go into them here. The dating has been specially accurate in relation to the recent ice ages, and this means that it can be applied with some confidence to existing animals and plants. One of the things discovered from the study of the remains of this period is the answer to the question in the evolution of life, how long does it take to make a new species? The answer is a million years. That is the reason for the title I have chosen for this essay. For a million years to come, we have got to put up with all the defects in man's nature as it is now. It is hardly necessary to say that there is nothing very exact about this million years. Some species change more quickly and some more slowly, but it does seem to be a good enough rough rule, and curiously enough, it seems to apply more or less irrespective of the number of generations in the million years, which of course would be immensely more for an insect or a rat than for a buffalo or a man. The million years may perhaps not be a very close estimate. It might even prove to be only half a million or possibly two million for man. But it is hardly possible it should be as short as a hundred thousand years. So it is good enough to assume that it is a million years. And if this is an overestimate, the reduced length of time is still long enough to give a fair average of human history. It is a vexed question exactly what the word species means, and many answers have been given. But perhaps the best answer so far was that given by the cynic, who stated, 
A species is what a trained taxonomist says is a species. This does not seem to advance the subject very much, but it is a fact that a, the trained taxonomists who have frequently disagreed among themselves about other species are all agreed that the species Homo sapiens includes all the races of humanity. There are, however, obvious differences of complexion and feature among them, which constitute them as varieties of the species. Since in the history of evolution, a variety is the starting point for the formation of a new species, it might be imagined that if one of the several races were completely isolated from the rest, it would slowly turn into a separate species. But there is no chance of any such isolation, and anyhow, if it should occur, it would take a million years to make the species, and so it would fall beyond the span of time I am considering. It is natural to believe that, when there are such obvious differences of complexion between the various races of man, there should go with these some differences in brain and in mental characters. But the psychologists and anthropologists have found it difficult to detect them. In mental characters, the range of variation inside each individual race is very wide indeed, so much so that it entirely submerges any difference in racial characters, if such there should be. So it is not useful to give any consideration to differences of race. In every race, there are highly intelligent people and very stupid ones. And all mankind display the same characteristics of pugnacity, ambition, envy, laziness, selfishness, unselfishness, loyalty, kindliness, sociability, sense of humor, and so on. There are, of course, obvious differences in behavior between individuals on account of differences of condition and of training or education, which I shall discuss in the next chapter. But it is correct to say that man really is one species and that as such, it will take a million years before anything notably different will arise in his nature. This is a fixed point which can be taken as the central thing that makes possible the prediction of his history for a million years and no longer. As an animal, man is subject to all the rules of heredity, the general principles of which have been fully worked out, even though much of the detail is still unknown for the human species. Of course, it has always been obvious that there is a natural tendency for offspring to inherit qualities from their parents, but the principles discovered about a hundred years ago by Mendel, though not widely known till the present century, have defined the situation very much more precisely. 
This is not the place to go deeply into the subject, and I shall only cite a few points which are germane to my purpose. The central feature of the Mendelian theory is the gene, which is the unit of heredity. A gene is usually only recognized by its effect on the bodily development of the animal. But the chromosomes in the animal's cells, which are strings of genes, are easily visible under the microscope. And in some cases, the position of a gene on its chromosome is fairly well known. So it may be said that the genes are particles of living matter which are very nearly visible. The germ cell of every animal contains a very large number of genes, and these dictate all the details of the animal's development, such as whether it is to be tall or short, light or dark, and so on. There are known rules, some of them quite complicated, but still perfectly definite, which determine how the genes are handed on from one generation to the next. The new generation has to have a complete outfit of genes, and this it accomplishes by drawing each of them from its father or its mother, but not from both. It is pure chance which parent contributes any particular gene. So the offspring contains a mixture of the genes of its parents, and therefore develops a mixture of their qualities. The genes of man, like those of every other animal, control the development of every part of his body, and this includes his brain. And since the quality of the brain determines all the natural mental characteristics, these also fall under the control of the Mendelian laws of inheritance. There is no doubt of this, but it must be confessed that up to the present time, little is known about the detail of the actual genes of humanity. It is through the inheritance of qualities useful in the struggle for life that natural selection works. But, with the old vague ideas about heredity, it was rather hard to see how a race of animals could be really benefited by any valuable character that might appear in one of its members. This animal's mate would not usually have the character, and so, according to the old ideas, the offspring would be expected to have it to half the extent of the favored parent the second generation to only a quarter, and so on. It seemed, therefore, that the character would be rapidly diluted in these succeeding generations, and it was hard to see how, in the long run, it could retain enough value to give any significant advantage. This difficulty is cleared up by the Mendelian law. The parent with the valuable character has a gene for that character, which it transmits on the average to only half its offspring. But those that do receive it, receive it to the full. The rest do not get it at all. Thus, for those who get it, 
There is no dilution in the quality. It continues at full strength and is able to give it to its possessors the full advantage that it confers in the struggle for life. There is thus a good prospect that the valuable quality may, so to speak, become anchored to the species by being incorporated among the genes of the majority of its members. If a dictator should ever aspire to bring about some really permanent change in humanity, he could do it if, and only if, he knew how to alter some of the human genes, for only so could the changed quality become anchored as a fixed character of the race. Genes retain their constant character for many generations of the animal cells, but they do occasionally change, and it is by the accumulation of these chance mutations that a new species may arise. Recently, it has been found possible to increase very much the frequency with which mutations occur, so that one might aspire to make much more rapid changes in the characteristics of an animal species than those which occur in nature. The method is to expose the germ cells to x-rays or to certain chemicals which disturb the process of cell division so that new cells may possess one or more changed genes. The process is in no way controlled by the experimenter. The x-rays simply stir things up so that an arbitrary change results, which he can then study and exploit. Quite a number of mutations have been produced in insects by these means, but most of them have been deleterious. This is not surprising, because an animal is a very delicately balanced mechanism, with its constitution continually kept up to the mark by the stringent conditions of life, and a large change in any part of its structure is far more likely to upset the balance than to improve it. Similar changes could no doubt be induced by x-rays in the human genes, but there too it is far more likely that the consequence would be deleterious than beneficial because of the upset of the balance of human qualities. To make any large beneficial change in one step, it would be necessary to make favorable changes simultaneously in several genes, and there is practically no chance that any x-ray dose could do this without at the same time damaging some of the other genes in the hu human germ cell. Even if we knew what we wanted, the prospects of improving human nature in a single step, or even in several steps, by artificial means, are so small that they can be left right out of account. The only prospect of improvement must be by taking advantage of the rare occasions when a small beneficial mutation happens to arise. Even without mutation, 
there is a tendency for animals to degenerate. And this, in spite of the constancy of the influence which each gene exerts in the formation of the animal's body. The reason is that in many cases, several genes have to cooperate together for the correct formation of one of its organs. The classic example is the eye of the fruit fly. This develops under the simultaneous control of many separate genes, and in consequence, it can exhibit a great variety of defects, each attributable to the lack of one or more of them. In the laboratory, these defects can be preserved and studied, but in wildlife, natural selection is continually destroying the insects with bad eyes, and thus the species is being kept up to the mark. This example suggests a speculation about the human eye, though of course that is an entirely different and much more wonderful organ than the eye of any insect. Man's life depends very much on his eyesight, and in the long past, anyone with defective eyesight would have had a distinctly lower chance of survival. Nature must have been continually keeping the human eye up to the mark in this way. But 15 generations ago, spectacles were invented, and at once some eye defects, such as short-sightedness, ceased to be a serious handicap. There is thus now no check against short-sightedness, and it is fairly safe to forecast that in another hundred generations or two, this defect will be even commoner than it is now. This speculation illustrates how any human quality may be expected to degenerate unless it is being disciplined all the time by the stringent test of natural selection. There is one other principle in the laws of heredity which calls for special comment here, since, though it is familiar to biologists, it is often unrecognized by laymen. It is known as the principle of the non-inheritance of acquired characters. This signifies that any change acquired by an animal during the course of its life is never passed on to its offspring. The simplest example is a mutilation, but the same rule applies to a skill of any kind that the animal learns during the course of its life. The subject has been hotly debated among biologists during the past 70 years, and all authoritative opinion is now agreed that such effects are not inherited. However, it is almost impossible ever to prove a negative, and at intervals new examples are still cited which are claimed as showing that characters acquired by an animal during adult life have been handed off to the offspring. Most of them do not stand the test of close examination, but even if there should be a residue of valid examples, 
and there is no reason to believe that there is, it is safe to say that a phenomenon so difficult to prove and so rare in its occurrence cannot have played any important part in the development of life on earth. The non-inheritance of acquired characters is just what would be expected from the Mendelian theory. The new generation derives its genes from those of its parents, and these parental genes were laid down before the parents were born, and they will not in any way have been affected by his or her later experiences, including those experiences which occurred before the procreation of the offspring. It may appear surprising that it took so long to establish definitely such a simple principle as this one of the non-inheritance of acquired characters. But closer consideration shows that the matter is rather more subtle than might appear at first sight. Many genes govern quite straightforward qualities, such as the color of a man's eyes, or the fact that after 20 years he is to start growing a red beard. But there are others which are by no means so obvious, such as those that determine tendencies of character. These tendencies may never exhibit their effects at all, unless an appropriate external situation should arise to evoke them. This may be illustrated by an example. Dogs vary very much in the ease with which they learn tricks, but the dog with this gift will never show it unless he is taught the tricks. The tricks themselves are obviously acquired characters, but the ease of learning them may be innate. A naive observer might think that the puppy learnt the tricks easily because its parent had been taught many tricks. Whereas, actually, all that has happened is that the parent did the tricks because it had the innate capacity for learning them easily, and it, is, and it has handed on this innate capacity to its offspring. Notice the contrast in the action of the dog's trainer according to whether acquired characters are inherited or not. Suppose that there are two puppies of the same litter, and that one of them learns tricks much more easily than the other. The second would need far more training than the first, and if the trainer really believed that acquired characters were inherited, he would expect that the descendants of this second dog would reflect the consequence of this greater training by themselves being easier to train. Actually, of course, the exact opposite will be true, since the descendants of the dog, which needed little training, will learn the tricks more easily. This example illustrates a point of immense importance to humanity that is all too often overlooked. I shall return to it in the next chapter. The Mendelian laws are perfectly precise and I have been describing them almost as though they had the same sort of certainty 
as the fundamental laws of physics, and I have not yet taken much notice of the element of chance that enters into them very intimately. The element, of course, arises from the way in which the offspring derives half its genes at random from one parent and half from the other. To those who are not very familiar with the principles of probability, it may appear that this fact will spoil the force of the whole argument, since chance means uncertainty, and therefore it might appear to destroy the validity of any law. Furthermore, the matter goes very much deeper, for pure chance plays a great part in all the subsequent life of every animal, as well as in its procreation. So it might well be asked, what is the use of being so definite about the laws of heredity, when they are always going to be dominated by the fortuitous circumstances of the animal's life? Such reasoning overlooks the influence of large numbers, which will reduce the most wildly various individual experiences to a nearly steady average. Since there may be readers who are not familiar with the extraordinary cogency of arguments based on probability, I shall devote a little space to the subject, and in the course of it, a number of other points of interest will emerge. The fortuitous occurrences in the events of life are what mostly attract our attention, but in the long run, it is the law of large numbers that counts. The law that the result of a large number of chance events tends to approach towards an average. For example, the player at the roulette table remembers chiefly the occasions on which he made large gains or losses, and he is apt to forget that in a lifetime of gambling, the actual result will almost certainly be that he has lost a small percentage of his total stakes, the percentage levied because the roulette board has a zero number which biases it slightly in favor of the casino manager. In the long run, it is this bias that counts, and the life of the human race on earth is certainly to be counted as a very long run, so that the bias is to be reckoned as the really important thing in it, and not the chance good or ill fortunes of individuals or even of nations and races. At the risk of over-elaborating the matter, I will take another example from Games of Chance, which brings out some interesting points. Five men sit down to a game of pure chance, each contributing the same capital sum, and they play according to the rule that anyone retires when he has lost all his capital. It is then a certainty that in the end, one of the five will win the capital of all the others. It is, of course, pure chance which of them it will be. If the stakes allowed on each hand are a large fraction of the capital, the game will be short, while if they are restricted to being small, 
The game may take a long time, but the final result will be the same. Now suppose that the capital of the players is no longer required to be equal. At once there is a bias in favor of the rich man. In the course of the game, each player has ups and downs, but the rich man may sometimes recover from a loss that would have bankrupted the poor man, so that he is definitely more likely to be the winner. winner. The moral of this is that if there are two nations in which the individuals of both have equal merits in the struggle for life, the one with the larger population will tend to have the advantage over the other. In this, I am not considering the fact that the larger nation might enlist more battalions so as to conquer the other. It is just that through its greater population, it can stand great misfortunes and still come back from them to prosperity, whereas those misfortunes would have totally destroyed the smaller nation. Returning to the game of the five players, suppose once again that they have equal capital, but that, though it is still mainly a game of chance, there is a small measure of skill in it. It now becomes likely, though not certain, that it will be the most skillful player among the five who will win. The skill may be of any kind. It may be that, through the greater intelligence, he can better estimate the chances so as appropriately to vary his stake at any stage of the game. Or it may be that he possesses fingers which make undetected cheating possible. I am considering simply who will win the game, not the question of the winner's moral character. If the stakes are high, so that the game is likely to be short, there may not be enough time for his skill to tell, and then he will have little advantage against the operations of pure chance. But if the game takes a long time, it becomes exceedingly probable that it will be the skillful player who will win. The moral of this is that natural advantages in the struggle for life will tell in the long run. For the individual animal or man, the stakes are often too high, so that he may be killed before his merit can show itself. But the history of the world is a long thing, and it is concerned not with individuals, but with large numbers of individuals. Because of its immense scale, the game of life is to be regarded as a game of small stakes, so that it becomes very nearly a certainty that the inherent qualities of the race will be what counts, and not the accidents to which individuals or even nations are exposed. Before passing on, there is one further point to be made. I have explained how the operation of chance becomes comparatively unimportant for large numbers. And it is very pertinent to ask how large the numbers must be. If, for instance, it was only true for millions and mi of millions, 
it might be felt that in any reasonable span of time, chance would still be dominant. Such a very general question can only be given a vague answer, but the answer is that the number usually need not be at all large for the chances to average out. With the typical example of spinning a coin, even a quite small number like 10 will almost count as a large number in the sense that if the coin is spun 10 times, the number of heads will rarely be more than 2 away from 5, which is the average number of heads. In most matters concerned with probability, 3 or 4 count as small numbers, 10 as a fairly large number, and 100 as a very large number. There are, of course, exceptions to this statement, as, for example, when the chance in favor of some very rare occurrence is being considered, but it will do in giving a general picture of the subject. In light of all these considerations, how does man stand in the animal kingdom in regard to the heritable qualities that are to help him survive? Physically, he is a poor thing, neither so strong, nor so swift, nor so tough as other animals, nor with effective means of defense. On the physical side, the only claims he can make to any superiority in the animal kingdom are his eyes, which have a refinement of perception above that of all mammals, and probably of most birds. His hands are one of the most versatile and delicate tools in nature, and the gift of speech, which has such tremendous social importance. But these things are relatively trivial, since the essential point of man the new phenomenon in nature is his intellect, associated with his enormously exaggerated brain. It is therefore in relation to his intellect that all man's other qualities must be considered. In the essential matter of survival, there are two things needed. The survival of the individual and the survival of the race. We are all very well endowed with dip, deep instincts for both. And curiously enough, we are ashamed of both of these instincts. As to the survival of the individual, we have a very strong, intimate, and deep fear of death, evoked by any form of danger. It is not a thing we boast about, but it is certainly a very essential quality for survival, and as such, it is to be regarded as important and valuable. For the reproduction of the race, there are two instincts needed, the sexual and the parental, and the way these are organized is, to say the least, curious. The sexual instinct, though much complicated by all sorts of taboos, is for the most of mankind nearly as violent as the fear of death. 
though it has the advantage of being pleasant instead of unpleasant. Among animals, it brings about the inevitable consequence of reproduction, and until very recently, the same was true for man, so that the Malthusian increase of population was assured. This is still true for a large proportion of the human race, but the existence of birth control has entirely altered the situation among the more highly developed peoples. The consequence has been to make reproduction depend for them not on an intense instinctive impulse, but rather on intellectual reasoning, and this for very many people is an exceedingly tepid motive. The parental instinct is also somewhat ineffective because for the majority it is only strongly stimulated by the presence of the children. That is to say, it is very important in preserving them, but it does not make any such claimant call on the emotions to beget them. It has not the same intensive compulsion as the sexual instinct. And this is not very surprising because of its very different function. No one can feel any very intense emotion continuously for more than a short time, whether it is pleasure or pain, anger or grief or fear, the sharp edge of it fades in a few days. Whereas the parental instinct has got to work effectively for 15 or 20 years if it is to serve the survival of the race. It is therefore hardly surprising that it should be steady and continuous, but not so intense an instinct as the sexual instinct or as the fear of death. It is a matter of great importance that the procreative instincts are at present ineffective in maintaining our population but I shall defer considering this till a later chapter after some of the other attributes of humanity have been discussed. Besides the instincts that I have dealt with, there are, of course, many other qualities, some of them not so instinctive, which are important for survival. One may be selected as preeminent. Man is superior to all other animals in his readiness to try experiments. Many of the higher animals like him can learn by experience, but if they are placed in an unfamiliar situation, they are lost, whereas a man will always try to think it out and will often find a solution of his difficulties. This flexibility of mind and the adaptability to unforeseen conditions are the main reasons why he has succeeded in dominating the world. They are possessed to very varying degrees by different individuals, but they are clearly of supreme importance in the struggle for life in an ever-changing world. There are many other qualities which help survival and I shall be content to mention only a few of them, some estimable and some the reverse. We value intelligence, honest, honesty, capacity for leadership, and other similar qualities, and we mark our approval 
by selecting their possessors for promotion. A man is promoted on account of his individual merits without any thought about the consequences for the distant future. In a less abnormal world than the present, his increased prosperity should lead to the man's having a larger family than those of the less prosperous, so that the good qualities inherited from him should gradually become diffused throughout the population in later generations. At the present time, the exact opposite happens all too often, in that he is likely to have a smaller family than the average. In fact, success in life is at present antagonistic to success in survival. I shall not consider this further now, since it is to be discussed later. It is always necessary to remember that nature itself is quite non-moral, and that there are many qualities which we by no means admire, which nevertheless are often regrettably effective in the struggle for life. Although the animal kingdom, one of the most successful roles is that of the parasite, and there are states of human society where such a parasite as the professional beggar is as successful as anyone else. Something of the kind is unfortunately true in Britain just now. The people we are really encouraging are not those that we think we are. For a great many of the people who get good promotion and are contributing less than their share to the next generation. At present, the most efficient way for a man to survive in Britain is to be almost half-witted, completely irresponsible, and spending a lot of time in prison where his health is far better looked after than outside. On coming out with restored health, he is ready to beget many further children quite promiscuously, and these problem children are then beautifully cared for by the various charitable societies and agencies until such time as they have grown old enough to carry on the good work for themselves. It is this parasitic type that is at present most favored in our country. If nothing is done, a point will come where the parasite will kill its host by exhaustion and then of course itself perish miserably and contemptibly through having no one to support it. Now though there may be occasions in human history when something of this kind can happen, there is no fear that it should happen to mankind as a whole, for a parasite is essentially subordinate to some host, and man claims, and claims reasonably, to be master of the world, so that there is nothing for him to be subordinate to. In the long run, there is no danger of mankind adopting the role of the parasite. There is another role, which is not by any means wholly admirable, that may well be specially successful in the struggle for life. This is the role of the hero, using the term not in the modern sense of a man embodying 
all the virtues, but in the original sense used by Homer, the Homeric hero who has his counterparts in many other semi-barbaric conditions of life is brave and reckless, but selfish, undisciplined, and something of a bully. He is by taste a leader, but his leadership is often marred by impatience and lack of persistence, so that he fails to carry through to the end any project projects which would take a long time. He cares little for the sufferings of others unless they are his henchmen, whom he looks after out of self-interest. From the present point of view, one of his most important characteristics is that he is usually by no means monogamous, but very much the reverse, so that his qualities are likely to be reproduced and multiplied many times in the next generation. It is possible that in the long run, the earth should be wholly peopled by heroes. It is irrelevant that it would be an extraordinarily disagreeable world to live in, for there is nothing in nature to dictate that the world has got to be agreeable. It does, however, seem unlikely that the heroic type can ever become a large fraction of the Earth's population because their qualities do not fit into a society of dense population. Rather, they prevent its existence, whereas the densely populated countries will dominate the Earth by sheer force of numbers. Still, there is certainly a place in the world for the heroic type, in particularly for their capacity for leadership. And if this quality could be dissociated from some of the other less desirable characteristics of the hero, there would be a great place for him in society. It is not impossible that such a separation of qualities may come about automatically, because the hero who can adapt himself to the civilized life of dense populations will have a better prospect of survival than the one who can only live in a state of semi-barbarism. This chapter has mainly devoted to considering the qualities of Homo sapiens regarded as a species of animal, and species of animals stay roughly fixed in type for something like a million years. In fact, of course, they are slightly changing all the time, but it takes this period before they are different enough to be given a new specific name. It is fitting to end the chapter by speculating on what man's characteristics will be when at the end of that period he is sufficiently altered to be regarded as a new species. He will have become Homo sapientior or what? The development of animal species has been studied by means of the fossils of past geological ages, which usually show changes in the animal's form progressing rather steadily through the ages. Though the record is often complicated by side branches which split off into new species or else flourish for a time and then come to nothing, 
Of course, these apparent steady rate of change have not really affected all the members of the species simultaneously. What has happened is that a few of the animals have chanced to develop a small superiority in some way, say an extra turn of speed, and through this advantage they have left more offspring than have the slower animals. The qualities of the members of a species are always spread over a certain range, and the average of the species is being continually dragged upwards, not through an equal change in all the members, but through unequal reproductivity at the two ends of the range. When Homo sapiens is changing, it will not be by the whole race gaining simultaneously whatever qualities better fit it for survival, but rather by certain types of mankind proving sur superior to the rest in survival value so that they contribute a larger proportion to the later generations and in doing so drag the average qualities of humanity in the same direction. The first question to consider is whether the varieties of mankind the white, yellow, brown, and black races may not branch off into different species. In the animal kingdom, such branching has sometimes arisen through long periods of geographical isolation, and another way has been through the development of infertility in the sexual unions between the most unlike members of the species. Neither of these causes will operate in the case of man, since the whole earth is his habitat, and all the races of mankind are fully fertile together. Climate has been another fruitful cause of the splitting of a species in two. Undoubtedly, some of mankind tolerate better a cold climate and some a hot. Will there then ultimately be a Homo articus and a Homo equatorialis? It is on the whole unlikely because man has learned so well to control his own climates. Even now, Arctic man can live comfortably in the tropics by cooling his dwellings with the help of physical science and by resisting the tropical diseases with the help of medical science. And the converse is equally true of equatorial man in the cold regions. It seems likely, then, that man will not diverge from one species into two on account of climate. Indeed, a convergence is more probable. Thus, although a fair-skinned man can make a success of living in the tropics by taking the trouble to control his climate, his fair skin is still some handicap to him, since it cannot so easily protect him against the direct rays of the sun as would a dark skin. On the other hand, there is not much evidence that a dark skin is a handicap in cold climates. If this contrast of effects is correct, it suggests that in the end, Man's complexion will be rather dark all over the world.
The physical characteristics of man may of course change with the lapse of time, but it is not likely that they should do so to a great extent, since it is not primarily these qualities that preserve humanity in the struggle for life. Even congenital good health and resistance to disease have been largely discounted by medical science. It is the intellectual qualities of man that really matter, and so it will be these that are most liable to change. In all such qualities, there will no doubt be a very wide range of variation between individuals, just as there is now, some being clever and some stupid, some good and some bad. The changes will come about by the increase of the numbers at one end of the range, at the expense of those at the other. It is very much a matter of conjecture what those changes will be, and I will only mention a few possibilities. General intelligence should always be of value, particularly the unspecialized intelligence that is adaptable to many varieties of purpose. So with some confidence, it may be expected that man will become cleverer than he is now. It is by no means so clear that he will become morally better as well, since in a highly competitive world, the sinner has many advantages over the saint. That is disappointing, but it must be remembered that moral codes have differed a good deal at different periods of history, and it is to be expected that future generations will succeed in constructing a moral code satisfying to the good man of those days and reasonably close to being within attainment by all, however much it may disagree with our own standards. Another, more specialized change may be suggested as probable. Civilization has taught man how to live in dense crowds, and by that very fact, those crowds are likely, ultimately, to constitute a majority of the world's population. Already, there are many who prefer this crowded life, but there are others who do not, and these will be gradually eliminated. Life in the crowded condition of cities has many unattractive features, but in the long run, these may be overcome, not so much by altering them, but simply by changing the human race into liking them. Finally, I will refer to another quality, which I shall discuss more fully in a later chapter. As has already been pointed out, man's present procreative instincts are failing to reproduce the species in sufficient numbers in many of the more civilized nations. Any of mankind that overcome this failing will increase at the expense of the rest, and there is already a germ for natural selection to work on in the spontaneous wish for some people for children. Whether this reinforcement of the procreative instinct should be dignified by a new specific name I do not know. But long before the end of a million years, it is almost certain that Homo sapiens 
will have changed into Homo pedophilus. End of chapter 5